Hello, Blogging Heads Nation. Welcome to Dresbert After Dark, uh, which is to say that uh, Heather Hurlbert and I are recording this uh, in the evening as opposed to when we do, nor normally do it during the morning. I'm Daniel Dresner. I am a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and the author of Spoiler Alerts for the Washington Post. And I'm Heather Hurlbert. I run the New Models of Policy Change program at New America and Having failed to get the disco ball installed before this, the inaugural edition at Dresbert at night, I did the only thing I could. I poured myself a big glass of wine. Oh, and Blogging damn. Heads fans, I salute you. Mr. Dresner, Professor Dresner, I'm just sorry that all you have is a glass of water. It is true. I am I'm going uh, ridiculously G-rated for this, mostly because I have to get up really early tomorrow. <laughs> but I would have I would it would have been good to have drunk some whiskey while we were doing this. I am, yeah, however, we... I am dressed down. I'm wearing a T-shirt on this one. You know, <laughs> given so. that I knew, actually, um, given that we knew we were going to start out this conversation with uh, Scott Walker's approach to our neighbors to the north, some Canadian whiskey would have been the appropriate beverage. I have to admit, I did not think I could get through a discussion of building a wall along <laughs> the length of the U.S. border with Canada without an alcoholic beverage. You have it. Right. So uh, I guess this raises uh, the Scott Walker question, which is, uh, I believe this question came up during uh, Meet the Press when Chuck Todd asked him, why are you so focused on the southern border? Why shouldn't there be a you know, should there be a wall on the northern border? And Scott Walker, rather than chuckling and dismissing that out of hand, said, you know, that's actually a topic for some serious conversation. I believe referencing some oddity that happened in New Hampshire, I don't really know. That's really not the point. The point is, is that everyone had fun with this, uh, you know, inviting all sorts of comparisons to the wall in Game of Thrones and really uh, just feeding a notion that Scott Walker has not handled the last month terribly well uh, on pretty much every dimension of campaigning. Well, it um, to me, this little event sort of really highlighted both Scott Walker's great strength and his great weakness. And his great strength, which liberals don't like to hear me say, but is he has this tremendous emotional intelligence and ability to say things that feel like a sensible response to people's fears. Mm -hmm. So you'll remember a while back, and we may even have talked about it in an earlier podcast, um, when he said, you know, the problem with the current administration's approach to terrorism was that we needed to have policies that respond to people's fears, mm -hmm. not that we need to have policies that respond to assessment of threats Actual by people threats, right. whose profession it is to assess threats as opposed to politicians, but we need to have policies that respond to people's fears. But that was, that, and I have said um, that that was brilliant. And as a, as a foreign policy practitioner, I hate it. It makes it much harder to sort of get people to worry about actual threats as opposed to overhyped threats. It gets it, it makes it much harder to, to focus on sort of the reality of the world we face. But as far as saying to people, you feel uncomfortable and I, as your president, will make you feel less uncomfortable. And what is the job of a president if not to make you feel less uncomfortable? It's brilliant. And you know, this thing, this thing with the, the Canadian border fence is kind of the same thing. Because if you think that your target audience thinks that a fence is you know, a perfectly reasonable idea, then his answer is totally reasonable. You know, it was instructive to, to watch the response in the Canadian media, um, by the way, which got significantly defensive in, in kind of a way that, you know, as you say, in the U.S. it was kind of fun. 
you know, in Canada, there was this kind of, wait, there's not really going to be a fence that's going to mess up trade, is there? <laughs> this is always, you know, I, I have a few Canadian uh, policy friends and, and the smart ones always say, we, we always say that they feel better when Canada does not come up in the U.S. election. There's always a group of Canadians that want to know, will Canada be talked about during the this presidential campaign? And, and you know, you usually want to say Canada is not really at the top of the, uh, the queue when it comes to uh, important policy issues, but the savvy ones know that when Canada ever, whenever it is mentioned during a prominent political campaign, it's not going to end well necessarily. Um, in that, you know, lots of silly, silly things are going to be said, uh, which I think was the case with respect to Scott Walker. I have to, I understand what you're saying about what Walker is talking about with respect to making people feel less fearful. That, and that politically, that's a very smart thing to say. And one can even argue that on policy grounds, Making people feel safer might be more important, actually, than actually making people safer, because it doesn't matter whether people are actually safer. If they feel safer, that's kind of the important thing. Um, but that said, I do think this might be a uh, th this might be a gaff too far for me, um, because I do think it highlights the ways in which Walker has, frankly, responded horribly uh, to Donald Trump's sort of rise in the polls. I think the interesting thing about Trump's rise now at this point is not so much Trump himself. Um, I actually, you know, I mean, he's entertaining, but, but you know, he's not going to get the nomination. It's more the ways in which the quote unquote establishment candidates have reacted to Trump. Um, and the thing that, that Scott Walker and, jo and Jeb Bush have in common is they have reacted really, really badly to him um, in that they've, they've kind of been all over the map, you know, and, and Walker, you know, in particular, seems to have, I think he articulated three different positions on birthright citizenship uh, within a week, um, you know, thereby matching uh, Jeb Bush's record on the Iraq war uh, earlier in the spring. Um, and then the other thing is, is that Walker gave this foreign policy speech on Friday. I don't know if you read it. Um, have you read it, actually? The Walker foreign policy speech, yes. I confess, I have not read. I am I am a bad person. That's and quite all right. I, someone here, will come and take my – actually, someone will come and take my wine away now because I just admitted that I didn't. I was just saying, Heather, come on. You could have totally, totally said that you had read it and probably would have gotten away with it. I did read it. Um, the – how to put this? I don't think it passes the Turing test. Um that, that's the way I would put it. Um, the, the, the speech that that one reminded me of was the first foreign policy speech that Rick Perry gave in 2012, which was a bad speech. Um, essentially, it's Walker saying, I will be tough and stand up for you know, the United States and take the fight to um, ISIS. And it was primarily Middle Eastern focused, but it really was mostly what I think Matt Iglesias and others have dubbed the sort of Green Lantern theory of foreign policy, which is to say that, you know, the problem with America under the Obama administration is a lack of will, and I will be that will. Um, it was a really bad speech. Well, I'm just going to say uh, that the, Mr. Walker did indeed have a, have a no good, very bad week. Um, and again, the problem is not so much that his idea on foreign policy is we need will and I will be that will. And I have demonstrated that I will be that will by beating up teachers unions, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, if only I say, if, if, if only it were as easy to dispossess ISIS as it is to dispossess a union in modern <laughs> America, imagine what great shape we'd be in. That's true. Um, and that is true, by the way, regardless of what one thinks of unions, yes. that's a bipartisan position we can all agree on. Um, but 
But so Walker's problem is kind of not so much if he gives an unsophisticated foreign policy speech that you and I make fun of over a glass of wine, but his problem is, his, and the real problem this week is that the, the media, which perceived him as kind of the younger, smarter, more ideological version of Je- alternative to Jeb Bush mm-hmm. and the younger, smarter, more media savvy version of Rick Perry has now just started saying he's Rick Perry. Yes. Um, no, the metaphor to Rick Perry in 2012 is, is uh, the force is strong with that one um, this week. I would say that the other problem for him, it's not just that we're you know mocking him. It's that, you know, for Walker to Walker's path to the nomination required having significant you know, it basically party support, both in the form of establishment endorsements and just as important, you know, the the main money people. And I think, I mean, the money people, to be fair, have questioned Walker's ability to deal with foreign policy all the way back to the sort of CPAC conference back in January. So this has been a running problem with him. Um, and there are now acknowledgments, I think, that that, uh, that problem is not going away. Um, and so as a result, uh, I, I do think it's a little it's a little more serious because the question w- will become and I think actually Jamel uh, Jamel Bowie wrote this uh, earlier today and he made it. He's correct, which is who is the who is the Romney in this race in the sense of once people get sick of, of Donald Trump and then Donald Trump will fall. And then I guarantee you we're going to have a Ben Carson boomlet after that. We're already having know, a Ben Carson boomlet. We're going to have that boomlet as well. And then maybe even a Carly Fiorina one. And, but eventually, we already had that too. Well, no, the Fiorina, it, it's, it's too modest. It, it, you know, wait, it could still happen again. The point is, is that at some point they're going to have to settle on who the hell they actually want to vote for. And I don't know if Walker will uh, improve to that, you know, improve enough so that he will wind up being the default choice. Yeah. I mean, there is this interesting resemblance to 2012, which in retrospect seems very inevitable, (laughs) but in 2011 and 2012 felt like sort of what will the wheel of fortune dial be pointing at when the dial stops spinning that everyone had, everyone had his moment. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I do think the way that the presence of Trump has changed the primary is that where the other guys all had a strategy for pulling in enough money and then knocking each other off. Right. You now can only get any oxygen by saying really outrageous or ridiculous things. And I, I do, I do just need to go back here because I'm actually feeling a pang of guilt for going after Walker about the Canadian border, but not saying anything about Jeb Bush explaining that his concern about anchor babies uh, wasn't about Hispanics. It was about Asians. Right. Um, which was just a moment that both as a policy matter, as a moral matter, and as a political practitioner, you just kind of, as as somebody memorably said on Twitter, I thought he was the smart brother. There you go. Um, Well, no, I mean, in some ways this gives rise to the contrast. The other person who gave a foreign policy speech last Friday was Marco Rubio. Um, And I believe he also has uh, an essay in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs. And to be very clear, I don't agree with Rubio on on certain aspects of foreign policy. I think he's far more hawkish than I am. But I would say the difference between Rubio and Walker is that when I read Rubio's writing and when I hear him speak, I get the sense he actually knows what he's talking about. Uh, And, you know, maybe that's a low bar for the presidency, but it's one that I consider in terms of foreign policy. And as I say, I actually think that once the, you know, there are issues that I, I disagree with him on, uh, in some cases rather extremely, but 
you get the sense that he, you know, as I said, he's got a, a clear philosophy of, of uh, foreign policy, which is based much more heavily on sort of, you know, neoconservative tenets of democracy promotion um, and human rights promotion, um, which is certainly a respectable way of, of thinking about it, I suppose. Um, and it's also clear and coherent. He, I mean, he, he goes after Hillary Clinton pretty hard in the speech. So did Scott Walker. But Scott Walker did it in a, almost like a, a instinctive, you know, reflexive way. And it was really not an organic part of the speech. Whereas with Rubio, he sort of set it up as a contrast between what had happened in terms of the Obama administration, in terms of things like pressing China on human rights or what have you. And then what he would want to do as president. And, it, you know, again, I Maybe it's relative to the rest of the field, but I, I actually think on Trump as well, Rubio has distinguished himself mostly by not embarrassing himself, um, which, again, might be a low bar, but is one that he has actually managed to surpass for the last uh, for, for during the entire sort of Trump mania period. And I do think that's commendable. Well, the first thing to say is I do. Marco Rubio deserves credit for having sought out assignment on Senate Foreign Relations, for having traveled, for having taken it seriously and for really attempting to learn something and and present himself as having learned something about about the world. And, you know, we need more elected officials from both parties who do that. So so let me, although we may have just killed his chances for the nomination by saying something (laughs) nice about him. Exactly. But but for but you know, first of all, yes, Marco Rubio does know what he's talking about and you know, probably could pass one of those nasty pop quizzes that right. people love to spring on candidates and, and you know, and because that's perceived as an unpopular, unpolitical thing to do, kudos to, to him for it. It it is it is interesting. I mean, of course, governors, there's an entirely different standard for governors and and fairly enough. I mean, on the other hand, you do actually have to lead trade missions. And um, Martin O'Malley, who has not been able to get himself much traction anywhere, and, and, you know, Joe Biden's non-candidacy is now polling far ahead of of Martin O'Malley's actual very thought out and hardworking candidacy. But, you know, O'Malley is an example of a governor who does know something about the rest of the world. And and when prodded, will will come out with it and also manages not to embarrass himself. You know, Kasich has also been really interesting because before he was a governor, he was um, in the house, senior committee staff in the house and thought a lot about military issues and, um, and, you know, uses that. And, and, you know, to, again, I mean, I give the guy credit. I may disagree with him on many, many things, but he has actually spent some time thinking about it and took pains to, to keep thinking about it as a governor. So, you know, Walker, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, to sort of compare him to, say, Bill Clinton, who, you know, certainly had at least as little. Well, actually, no, that's not true because Clinton had actually lived overseas. But um, it's interesting. You mean when he was a Soviet spy? <laughs> Dresner, most of our viewers are too young to know about I was so close to getting you to come to admit to that. Okay, sorry. Dude. Yeah, sorry. Sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah, so so audience, Bill Clinton was not a Soviet spy, (laughs) but it was a really fun campaign scandal in 1992 back when when Hillary wore those big glasses. You can Google it and read all about it. Yes, okay. Um, No, but so, but, you know, Clinton, Clinton managed not to categorically embarrass himself quite so badly, which leads us back to the question of China, because it's, Ah, you know, it's fun to remember that in 1992, Bill Clinton 
really effectively beat up on the incumbent George H.W. Bush for not yeah. being tough enough on China. That's true. Um, using some rhetoric that might not sound too unfamiliar to readers of that Marco Rubio speech. You know? Oh, yes. Oh, oh, my. That's an interesting parallel. And my, you know, it does. It, it reminds you how the wheels, how the wheel of history turns. Uh, yeah, th th I would actually say, again, last week, not a good week for Republican candidates talking about China. Um, so I'm trying to think who who brought this up. I think Trump just said something stupid. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't even want to. There's no point in bothering with it. Um, Except to note that, I mean, one would sort of expect that 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 would be the one area that Trump would actually know something about having right. done, you know, having run a company and worked in international business. So one right. would, you know, one would not expect Trump to grasp the finer points of nuclear deterrence, but a meltdown in the Chinese stock market, you might expect the guy to have something interesting to say about it. And he didn't. Um, right. And then the oh. second person to open his mouth was Scott Walker, actually, who uh, blasted Obama for inviting Xi Jinping for a state visit, suggesting that the state visit should be canceled at this late date. Um, there was an absolutely devastating National Review column, by, or not column, story by Eliana Johnson, in which she basically talked to conservative, you know, sort of China experts at AEI and, and sort of conservative think tanks, all of whom basically said that was a really, really stupid idea. Um because it was at such a late date. Now, again, this is another contrast between Rubio and Walker, because Rubio, in that Friday speech, did say, look, you can't cancel the state dinner at this point, but you can press China on these other issues. And again, it sort of shows that he at least you know, has, has a vague sense of, of uh, what is in the realm of the possible. But I think my favorite, hands down, was Chris Christie, um, who warned, and, and this is a, apparently a thing now in conservative policy circles, warned that because of China's gyrating stock market, what will happen is that China will start dumping U.S. treasuries, um, which will somehow lead to a financial panic in the United States. Um, okay, so take us through that one. Why would China's gyrating stock market lead the Chinese government to dump Treasury securities. Well, there's two versions of this, as near as I can determine. One version is the, if I'm going down, we're taking everyone with me. So it's the notion of if China's, you know, facing economic collapse, why not, uh, why not take everyone else down? I think that's the sort of loosely articulated version of it. Can I just pause you there sure. and note that it is so goddamn boring? I mean, you wouldn't go see sequels to a superhero movie if every single enemy in every single superhero movie uttered the line, if I'm going down, I'm going to take the whole world with me. <laughs> you know, just once I would like to have a geopolitical adversary who's not suicidal. Right. Yes. Yeah, in in my in my in my consumption of political national security rhetoric, is that so much to ask? I think that's a reasonable request. Um, I, I think you're, you know, that, that's, that's it. There being, thing. there being, by the way, evidence that the Chinese leadership is many, many things, but suicidal is not one no, of them. No, they're certainly not. To, to be fair, the more substantive version of this would be, weirdly, it's contradictory because the, this, the other thing that Christie and all the, and Trump and all the Republicans are criticizing the Chinese about is letting the renminbi decline. Um, that is to say they, they announced, uh, you know, about two weeks ago that there would be a wider band uh, in terms of trading for the RMB vis-a-vis the dollar. And the problem is, is that with China's stock market uh, not doing well and the and evidence of the Chinese economy slowing down, the, the pressure on the RMB is to depreciate, not to appreciate. This is actually market forces at work. Um, so it's one of these things where 
you know, the Republicans desperately, you know, are complaining, why does China, you know, um, keep its currency so undervalued right now china's currency if it's undervalued it, it's not undervalued what's happening is the market is freaking out about chinese the chinese economy and understandably wants to get out of the chinese economy and into the u.s economy shockingly that causes the dollar to rise and the renminbi to fall now this is why therefore the chinese might actually be selling treasuries which is they need to sell those treasuries to get dollars to buy renminbi um, which is to say it's possible that the Chinese Central Bank, the People's Bank of China, is intervening in currency markets to prevent the RMB from depreciating even more, um, to prevent market forces, interestingly enough, from working, because they think it legitimately that it's a potentially panic situation. Now, the question is, is just how many, you know, how, uh, the extent to which China is willing to sell so many treasuries in order to do that. Um, and there's some evidence that actually, you know, if you take a look at the treasuries market, the long-term treasury debt market the interest rates haven't gone down as much, perhaps, as you might expect during a panic when you would expect capital to rush into the United States. But that said, it's a really small difference. Um, and it, by and large, this is evidence, as I have said for the last six goddamn years, that people concerned about China's holding of U.S. debt do not know what the hell they're talking about. Sorry. Well, this brings me back, actually, to the Rubio speech and to something I found rather striking in it, which which marks a real shift. I mean, it, it both marks a shift in kind of it, it marks a shift in American establishment thinking, but it also marks just how far Republican presidential campaign rhetoric has moved away from the sort of business establishment mm. that Rubio works very hard, number one, to pin the idea that talking China into opening its economy would bring good things for China and the world to make that into a democratic idea. Which is crazy. I mean, it's it's been a bipartisan talking point since, you know, I mean, you could go back to Nixon or back to Reagan, but it's been, it's been a bipartisan talking point. Go ahead. Yeah, it's been a bipartisan talking point that Democrats fight over internally in presidential years. And Democratic candidates are pressured to say things about it that they then don't do once they're in office. But it's quite unusual to see a Republican doing that. I I will say there there has always been an element of the Republican Party that has pushed this. I mean, particularly the evangelical. Right. But it's just not usually the ones that sit on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. That's a fair point. Go ahead. That's what's changed. The, The other thing that was quite shocking to me, and you mentioned it with respect to Walker, was... Rubio saying, you know, and I, there was some applause line about the U.S. not having political cooperation with China, mm-hmm. um, which and military. He wanted to cut military cooperation. Which that was also, nuts. again, that was a great applause yeah. line. It sounded really great. However, what what you have to know is that actually for years. The Chinese military didn't want to do anything with us because they didn't want our military to see how backward they were. Yes. And PACOM has been pushing for years to get more mill-to-mill cooperation. Yes. And so the the thing that people say, domestic PR people who might be adding last-minute applause lines into candidates' speeches might not appreciate, not not that I would ever have done anything like that myself or know anyone who ever did anything like that. <laughs> no, you're fine But that. what people don't appreciate is you want to exercise with countries because then you see how their military actually works. Yes. It's free information. Yes. You talk to people. It's just, it's nuts, the idea Although, that you wouldn't exercise with. Part them. of the problem, I mean, in some ways you, you, you just explained why that doesn't come up during campaigns because the problem is, is that you can't say that during a campaign. 
you know, you can't have, you know, let, let's say you, you can't are, say it ever really, unless you're me sitting in my right, dining room at, at nine 30 with a glass of wine. Right. Exactly. So it's one of those things that you can't, you can, a, 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 someone running for president can never admit, Oh yeah, we're totally doing this mill to mill cooperation so we can, you know, essentially watch, you know, spy on the, on the Chinese military to figure out how they do things. Um, you know, cause guaranteed that, that causes an immediate diplomatic blow up, even though it happens to be the truth. And, and by the way, it's probably one of the reasons why the Chinese, you know, if they see any benefit from this, it's from watching, uh, you know, it's from watching the Americans. Um, but anyway, the point is, is that, uh, when it comes to China on the debt question, uh, my, you know, overwhelming piece of advice is don't panic. Well, speaking of China watching the Americans, this brings us to the other percolating China issue, yes. which is these allegations that, um, you know, oh my gosh, the Chinese are being sophisticated. And not only are they hacking um, various U.S. government website and taking home information about all of us who have held or applied for a security clearance since 2000. Hi. Hi. Um, That's me too. <laughs> but... Um, Good. Oh, that's really sweet. So, so uh, all of your dirty laundry is out there in public already, too, huh? Well, my dirty laundry would be when I was applying. It was two thousand. So I've got fifteen years of dirty laundry since then. Yeah. No, I'm in the same. I'm in the same situation. My last clearance was um, completed sometime in early two thousand. So we were so close, so close to avoiding. (laughs) So close. But but the thing that came out this week was this idea that that um, Chinese officials have been enterprisingly cross-indexing us. So, Dan, they're wise to that front company that you run that pretends to be what about front beating, company? About, that pretends to be about meeting, beating the margins in Asian stocks, but is really about teaching um, CIA operatives how to beat the margins in Asian stocks. God damn it, Heather. You know. Um, oh, shit. Was I not supposed to say that? Heather, I... Great. How the hell is my child going to college now? Okay, that's all I got to ask you. All right. That was a brilliant, you know, get rich quick scheme. And it's now for mom. Sorry, well, go ahead. My child, my child is going to win the hot dog eating competition. That's our yeah. that's our plan for college costs. So just Fair I mean, I guess I could let you in on that. I could let you in on that racket. But anyway, uh, so in all seriousness, yeah. I mean, this is like, it's all very well to joke about it. But this is a real and quite large thing. No, this is this is actually I would argue at this point the single biggest irritant in Sino-American relations. Yeah. yeah. And so the administration announced over the weekend that it was preparing sanctions. Well, it didn't announce. Then, let's be clear. Did they, did they announce or did, was it just a story in the Washington Post? Did they announce or did they leak? You know, I think I, they leaked. You have, you have busted me. I think they so leaked. You busted me twice. And now I got to fess up that this weekend I had the kid's birthday party and the mother-in-law's birthday party. And I, I, it's totally showing in my failure to have read the Scott Walker speech and to know whether the announcement of the sanctions were, was made or leaked. And, and like, I'm, I'm going to have to go and like ritually disembowel myself. It's amazing. This. The truths that come out during Dresbird after dark, I think this we're going to, we're going to have to do this every once in a while. Just do them no, after it's, dark. So it's we can totally confess. true. Cause I, not only did I, I, by the way, I never watched the shows. That's like my other true confession. But I didn't even this... read about the shows this weekend. Oh, you mean the Sunday morning shows? Yeah. Ah, fair enough. Yes. Okay. But so I have now, anyway, I have now made my confession, but there's an interesting sort of debate about whether these are the right sanctions, yeah. whether they'll do any good, whether there's any point. And the fact that the story dropped before the summit, which is 
due to take place in middle of September when Xi Jinping comes. But after the Walker and Rubio speeches, although, right. as you say, Walker didn't focus so much on. Yeah. Um, I mean, I need to, you know, again, I think this came out in a story in the post. And so I don't know if this has been formally announced yet. But I mean, the sanctions that will there's always a danger when you just say sanctions, because it gives the impression that the United States is sanctioning all of China. And I and as I understand it, that is not what would happen this time. Um, the sanctions would be in some ways that in trade, we would call them anti-dumping uh, provisions. But in some ways, the sanctions are clearly being targeted against individuals and entities suspected of the attacks rather than um, rather than the Chinese economy writ large, um, which, you know, truthfully, I don't think they're going to they're not necessarily going to accomplish that much in the way of causing China to cease and desist its cyber attacks. On the other hand, again, I'm sorry, because I got a theory of sanctions. This is perfectly consistent with when you would expect to see sanctions, because China and the United States are expecting a lot of conflicts on this issue. And therefore, in that circumstance, yeah, you start sanctioning at this point to indicate you will continue to do it down the road. So have we has there now been a long enough period in which we've been able to do these much more targeted or individually based sanctions to have for the academic literature to, to have a, a a view on whether they work better, worse, what they work for, than am, sort of economic economy wide sanctions. You know what? I'm going to say I cannot comment on that exactly, um, in that I am in the middle of my own research on this. Um, so I, stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, no, I'm writing something on this. You know, uh, over the next couple of months. Uh, let me put it this way. The, the answer is, is that the kind of sanctions that, you know, people are th – there's two categories of this. There's the sort of, you know, smart sanctions that people talked about in the 90s, you know, which were, you know, you sanction luxury goods or travel bans or arms embargoes and what have you. Uh, yeah, the evidence is in on those, and they work less well than comprehensive sanctions um, by the by. Now, if you want to talk about targeted financial sanctions, which is what really people are enthusiastic about, you know, basically since 2006 onward – um, and, you know, the sanctions that have been applied against Iran and Russia. Uh, that's the stuff I'm working on right now, and the jury is still out on it. There is no doubt that those sanctions are more potent in the terms of imposing more significant costs on the target, which means, generally given our theory of sanctions, they should presumably be more successful. The problem is, is that what you're asking for very often with these sanctions is also much, much, much more significant, and therefore it's not obvious they're going to succeed anymore. Hmm. So the um, travel bans and so on, are those equally ineffective regardless of the, the type of issue that they're, um, that they're being used for? Yeah, right? they're pretty much ineffective. I bring them up because, you know, they've been a very popular tool on, um, on human rights right. and mass killings and so on, where, you know, very often there's just very little else you can do and the, the financial and the sanctions are not so... Applicable. Right. The other problem is, is that sanction, any kind of sanction usually generally makes the human rights situation in the country worse, period. Um, so the argument was is that the smart sanctions would not cause as much suffering. And that is true um, in that, generally speaking, the smart sanctions usually had less humanitarian suffering. Countries that were facing those sanctions had less humanitarian suffering. The problem is, is that they achieved absolutely nothing in terms of actually improving human rights uh you know, or, or creating any kind of human rights concessions. So in some ways, they were designed precisely to be a symbolic instrument. The kind of sanctions that we're talking about now 
are clearly not designed to be symbolic. They're designed to actually hurt. And the question is whether they will actually yield anything in the way of concessions. I mean, I guess the other question that I would have from the human rights perspective is, is there any evidence of prospective usefulness? I mean, of course, it's always hard to prove yeah, negative. Yeah, this is... And this is going to be, I'll leave it this way, this is actually, I think, the more, the most interesting frontier of sanctions research that I would like to see, because um, in, in some ways, it's also actually literally hardwired into the, the latest national security strategy. They're, they're very explicit that in terms of talking about the deterrent effect of sanctions, which is to say, even if sanctions don't work, if you employ them against country X, they will cause countries Y, Z, A, and B to think twice about doing the same thing because now they know what the costs and benefits are. Um, the tentative, I haven't seen anything particularly with respect to human rights, but the tentative evidence that I've seen suggests that there is a deterrent effect, but there needs to be a hell of a lot more research before I'm truly confident in saying that. But it, yeah, it, I mean, because yeah. at the individual level, what you're trying to do is um, create incentives for a class of decision makers and people mm -hmm. who might eventually, you know, senior military officials who might one day take power to remind, you know, to think to themselves, oh, you know, if I choose this method of dealing with my enemies, you know, I will find myself unable to send my kids to university in the UK and I will not get to go to those cool meetings in countries X, Y, Z. And, you know, all in all, ugh, you know, it's tempting to do that, but maybe it's just not worth it. Yeah, so there's there's there's, you know, the, the hope is that there's an individual level deterrent as well as a sort of state level deterrent. Possibly. I mean, I think the state I live this way. I buy the state level deterrent much more than I buy the individual level. Hmm. Um, but I mean, is that is that just because you just basically think nothing works on human rights issues? Because it does no, seem no, to no, me that's not it. it's hard. I mean, there are a number of just a depressingly high number of cases where the choices of individuals play a really central role in massive human rights violations. So so finding levers that have an effect on the choices of individuals is is worth trying to do. I would say it's more that the individuals that wind up being in charge of the sort of most repressive activities in cases where the human rights situation is deteriorating are probably less interested in things like traveling to London or New York. And so as a result, the, the individual level sanctions don't necessarily work on them. If, on yeah. the other hand, they are interested in doing that, then, yeah, they can potentially have an effect. Right. No, that's... I buy that up to a point. Yeah. I don't necessarily buy it past a point. But right. I buy it up to a point. But speaking of sanctions, uh, we should close with our last uh, conversational topic, which is the Iran deal and the imminent lifting of sanctions on Iran. Um, I think at our last uh, Dresbert conversation, we talked about how this month was going to be, or last month, that is to say, August was going to be very interesting because clearly APAC and a variety of other sort of anti deal. Uh, lobbying groups were about to fire up just about every tool in their arsenal as a way to somehow gin up a frenzy of uh, anger at the Iran deal. And a month later, and, and I got to say, I called this one. Uh, it has not worked. Yeah, I believe we are up to 32 senators. I think it's 33, that? actually. Cause uh, I, oh, we hit we hit the big 33. I think it's so 33, because Casey and Coons came out today, so that leaves... Okay, yeah. yeah. That might even be 34. I'm not sure. Um, if, well, all right, okay, well, then it's... Yeah. yeah, but so... But everyone knows when, it, it's going to get past 34, so go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's over. And by the it's way, over. it was never... There, there was never... They were never even close to two-thirds in the House as well, so that's another thing. 
Well, this is, I mean, the interesting thing, so a couple of interesting yeah. things here. One is, you know, the word that you've heard is that McConnell would not like to waste time passing something, having the president veto it, and then demonstrating that he can't override the veto. He'd rather move on. Right. Um, however, in the House, it seems likely to me that there will need to be a vote. And so oh, yeah. you, you can expect... Um, I mean, again, sort of fascinatingly, you you can expect several weeks of kind of agony and confusion about this, even though it's it's clear it's pretty much clear at this point that that the game is up. Which which leads us to the second question, which is kind of a a wonderful sort of poli sci textbook come to life, even though it's not very happy. Which is why did APAC spend all that money? Well, actually, first of all, I have to say I've seen I've seen the announcements of how much groups said they were going to spend. I'm very curious about whether that much was actually spent in as much as I live in Maryland. um, And I don't believe Senator Cardin has. He has not weighed in yet. Yeah, he hasn't taken a position yet. So theoretically, I should be seeing ads on TV all the time. And nothing. Haven't, Haven't seen a single one. Haven't seen ads in my local media. Um, I'm peripherally involved in a number of Jewish communities around the DC burbs and have seen, I have seen only pro deal. Now that may reflect my liberal leanings, but if there was supposed to be a massive media blitz, it, it, it certainly passed, it passed Ben Cardin by and Ben Cardin is an example of the kind of guy that you were going to have. You'd want to target Cardin. Yeah. I mean, particularly as the, yeah. So I, I personally think there may have been a certain amount of smoke and mirrors in the announcement about how much money was going to be spent. Okay. But the other point that I would make um, is that, you know, ultimately, to a very great extent, this was a, a shadow boxing match, the goal of which being to get partisans excited. And it is possible that Republican partisans were excited. I mean, I, you know, I mean. To, to the Republican, you know, to, I guess to APAC's credit, not a single Republican will vote for this deal either in the House or the Senate. Um, but that said, the problem is, is that if you take a look at all the polling that I've seen, Democrats, Democrats are more enthusiastic about the deal, I think, than Republicans are opposed to the deal. Well, Democrats are more enthusiastic about the deal than Republicans are opposed to the deal. And I believe that American Jews are more enthusiastic about the deal than the general public yes. is. Yeah. So um, if I were I, well, two things, were I a large donor to APAC, I would be thinking a lot about whether I had gotten my money's worth. Mm-hmm. Um, this is perhaps also a good moment to um, to advertise my New America colleague, Lee Drutman's book, The Business of America is Lobbying, um, in which Lee points out some eternal truths about lobbying that sometimes elude us in the foreign policy community, mm-hmm. one of which is it's not how, it's not how much money you have, mm-hmm. it's what you're using it for. And he says, if I see you spending a lot of money at the last minute, that's a sign of weakness, not yeah, a sign true. of strength. No, you can argue he, the, the very fact that the deal was negotiated, that, that in some ways the, the jig was up when, when the framework deal was announced and then the... Uh, I, was it the Corcoran? I can never remember what the name of the bill was that everyone is now voting the Iran deal on. Yeah. No, look, Menendez Corker, and the the other thing that is is sort of interesting about minute about about the politics of this mm-hmm. is that when that bill gives everybody what 
well, it gives it gives a lot of people what they want. Yes, it gives it gives Democrats who want ultimately to support their president the opportunity. I mean, frankly, it gives you know Chuck Schumer and and Menendez the opportunity to vote against. Right. To, to say they're voting against the, the deal. deal without risking actually bringing it down. Yeah. Oh, I, Menendez, I think, actually does want to bring down the deal. I don't think Schumer necessarily. Schumer, yeah. Fair yeah. enough. Fair yeah. enough. I mean, Menendez should be so lucky that he's still in the Senate by that time. But we'll, Whatever. we'll leave. Yeah. Men, we'll leave. No, I mean, Menendez and his. Um, I mean, it is. it does sort of count as foreign affairs because apparently the guy who was bribing him flew him and his girlfriends to Paris. <laughs> So it sort, of, sort of counts. But anyway, um, let's get back to the main point. No, but it but look the but the point here is then, you know, if you're a Republican presidential candidate or if you're Mitch McConnell, you don't actually want to establish the precedent that Congress goes out and does that right. the president goes out and does something and Congress overrides it. Nor, frankly, should you actually win the presidency, nor do you want to have to walk in and deal with Iran building a nuclear weapon, the Israelis on the verge of striking, and the rest of the world really peeved at you for blowing up this deal on your yes. first day. So you are much happier if this deal goes through. And as a bonus, you get to fundraise and run against it. There you go. So, you know, that's the shadow play that's been going on. And the, I mean, the thing I find frustrating and terrible about it is that it is kind of ripping the American Jewish community apart in a really unpleasant way mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of leading. I mean, I just think the, the debate about it overall, you know, has been, has been unhealthy for security in the debate in the U S in, in a number of ways that it, you know, it rips apart the American Jewish community. You have this kind of frantic deployment of, well, we have 200 former military officials who oppose the treaty. Oh, we yeah. Have 40 senior, senior former officials who favor the treaty. Well, we have Israelis who oppose the treaty. Well, we have Israelis who favor the treaty. And you, you kind of can't, you know, you, you can't blame a normal human being for just looking at this and saying, yeah, all of these people are equally full of crap. <laughs> Um, and I hate I hate when that happens. I don't know. I mean, I will say this. I think the best explanation for why APAC did what it did, I think Eli Lake actually tweeted it, which was essentially that in some ways they, they were between a rock and a hard place, which is they had a situation where, to be fair, not just the Netanyahu administration, but I believe every major party in Israel is opposed to the Israel deal or is opposed to the, the Iran deal. Um, and if you're allegedly the political action committee, you know, affairs committee that is supposed to represent what, you know, you think is good for Israel. And if all of Israel's parties are opposed to it, then you look pretty weak if you don't wind up opposing the deal um, from that perspective. Uh, you know, so I, th I think that's the, the best articulation. But that said, what what is striking and I think what's what's genuinely seemed to surprise deal opponents is the, is the extent to which it's not just the Democrats are coming out in favor of the deal. It's the Democrats in, in red states that you would have thought would have been feeling more vulnerable um, have pretty much had no problem whatsoever coming out for the deal. It's not, that, it's not even that they're coming out for the deal. They're coming out for the deal and they're not really agonizing about it all that much, um, which I, I think actually is boils down to my fundamental theory about this, which I think I articulated last month, which is the public doesn't care about this. Yep. Um, which is to say that, yes, you know, I mean, all the polling I've seen suggests that if you just ask people a very loosely, you know, formed version of this question, 
you get kind of some opposition. You, you get like a plurality that opposes the deal. If you actually inform voters about what's in the deal, you generally get a plurality in favor. of it. But that, that said, the pub, this is not an issue that frankly motivates the public. And because it's not an issue that motivates the public, you can throw as much money at the problem as you want if you're an, op, you know, an opponent to the deal. It's not going to whip up a frenzy. Um, well, let's let's note, though, that there are sort of two exceptions to the, the, the rule that you okay. just made. One being it's clear that there is a significant subset of the Republican primary electorate that is very exercised by all security questions and in particular by the kind of Iran-Israel um, nexus. Right, but, so, that's, but that's like a very, I mean, that is still a very small fragment of Well, but it's a significant it fragment yeah, yeah, yeah. in the context of, of a Republican presidential in the campaign, program. yes, but yeah, I was talking about... And, but the, the other thing, you know, that's been really interesting about this is that there was this hypothesis, and in some ways, you know, the APAC expenditures were sort of an, an effort to test this hypothesis. There was this hypothesis that American Jews would care about it mm -hmm. and that that would be enough or that, that the American Jews would care about it in a way that would change that would be a it would change their voting preference a sufficient force to change the votes of key Democrats in Maryland, New York, Michigan, Colorado, Senator Merkley in Oregon, you know, right. there was there was like 10 targets yeah. that both sides Spent all summer targeting. Um, Although I would, and, can I just add? What, this has yeah, been. No, go ahead. This, I mean, you're right. I think that was true, and yet this has been something the Republicans have been betting on and getting wrong for well over a decade. The yep. notion that you know, on Israel, we that, that is the issue that we will finally bring Jews over, or the majority of Jews over to the GOP, and it has not worked. Well, and this is, you know, the, the two things that are so interesting about sort of why I think it didn't work this time. And one is just that it was so clear how partisan polarized this issue had become. Yeah. So you weren't just asking people to sort of change position on an issue. You were asking people to do something that was clearly out of step with the political party they preferred. So you right. were really asking people to reject something very core about yeah. how they how they frame their decision making and how they pick what ideas they like. Mm -hmm. So if you think of yourself as a democrat. And you know, second, I think it you know, there's an interesting point that you know did some of the things that APEC did it felt like it didn't have a choice to because if it didn't do them other groups would have yeah. done them but the way Netanyahu played this oh god don't it get me started really jammed yeah. American Jews into this kind of oh, yeah. do you support your own democratically elected president or do you support me BB king of the Jews I, no, look, this is something I have said for – this is something I've said since he announced he was going to give the speech to Congress, which is when it has come to the Iran deal, the least powerful player on the chessboard was actually Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and, you know, he's maximized this strategy of trying to to, uh, to whip up a frenzy against Obama. I think he's probably done it about as well as that strategy could have been played, and it was never going to work. Well, um, it got him reelected. Yes. Okay. No. Okay. That's fair. But that's a. But that's Israeli domestic politics, as opposed to actually, if he was interested in stopping the Iran deal. 
um, which I assume he legitimately is, that it's not just a question of politics for him. Um, but I, I have to get going, unfortunately, because... Uh, um, well, people who um, people well, actually, no. I guess this won't be posted before people could see you at the airport at five o'clock tomorrow morning. So, God, um, folks, look for Professor Dresner <laughs> in San Francisco um, at the uh, American Political Science Association. Seek him out. Ask for his autograph. Oh, screw and you, <laughs> Dan. Dan can't handle the fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, next thing you know, they're going to be making a biopic about you and interviewing me. Yeah. Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> Amy, Amy, knew, Wine, Amy Winehouse, here we come. I knew Dresner was an asshole from day one. Now, but, uh, um, I, I did want to close it, with, one predict, with uh, one question for you, which is, do you think on the Iran deal the Democrats will have enough votes in the Senate to actually filibuster? Yes. Okay. I was just curious about that. I'm coming to that conclusion as well, but I, you, I, would, I trust your instincts on this as well. No, the really interesting question will be whether Mitch McConnell decides to make them filibuster or not. Oh, that is interesting. That's, that's kind of what I'm, huh. you know, in, in lieu of actually watching, you know, sort of watching Congress debate an authorization for use of military force in Syria, for example, that's what I'm watching for in September. Fair enough. Um, so the next time we meet, mm -hmm. we will have had that wonderful annual spectacle, which is the United Nations in New York to talk about. Okay. Um, will China still have a stock market in a month? Uh, yes, but it won't be. It, it, I, what I'm wondering is whether it'll be the same level that it was a year ago, which is possible. Okay. Well, yes. right. You heard, you heard it here first. The next time we meet, um, China's stock market may be back where it was a year ago. And... Um, we think that there will either have been Iran a successful filibuster be successful. and the Iran deal will have been successful. We'll just have to drag out far enough into October before we meet again to just kind of allow for that second prediction to come true. But have a, good a trip. Yes. have a good trip, Dan, and good night, good night, loyal audience. Good night.